This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me uh, in them to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning and you own a Bible, we'd love uh, to have you bring that with you, encourage you to bring uh, your physical Bible. I know you can look on your phone, you can look on your iPad, and I know for some of you that's what you're going to do regardless of what I say, and that's okay. That's better than nothing. Um, but I would, con- I would uh, encourage you to bring a physical Bible with you. Uh, if you don't have either, or if you have neither, I guess, the, the words will be up on the screen behind me. I want to start this morning simply by reading our text, by reading our text and praying for us, and then we'll move uh, into the word that God has for us this morning. Let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Colossians chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. One uh, single thought from the Apostle Paul. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to hear from you, to be formed by you. to have our lives transformed by the Holy Spirit, God, that your Son would be magnified and glorified in and through our lives. God, by your gracious mercy this morning in this place, I ask that deafened ears would hear the truth, that blinded eyes would see the truth, God, that darkened hearts would understand and receive the truth. God, I pray for everyone in this room, everyone watching online, from the youngest to the oldest, God, for our LM kids, workers, and children, and the other part of the building, God, that are seeking to make much of Christ right now, 
I ask that you would pull us close to you and form us, God, more into the image of your son. I pray these things, God, with confidence. God, with assurance that your word does not go out in vain. God, with faith that when your people gather in your name and for your glory, God, that you do a good work in us. May it be so in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. This uh, week, Jake forwarded me an article. Uh, it was very interesting uh, to me. comes from the Institute on Religion and Democracy. It's also been picked up by Ministry Watch, which is uh, a nonprofit organization that just helps keep an eye on um, nonprofits across uh, the board especially Christian nonprofits, in regard to uh, their function, their teaching, so that donors can be informed. The title of it is, God is Queer, Duke Divinity Students Proclaim. Uh, I forwarded the article last night to a couple of close friends of mine who are in my doctoral program at Baylor, who are Duke Divinity grads, um, at least under the old guard there. Duke Divinity, who has um, had some of the most uh, influential theological and biblical professors in the last hundred years, but has, along with much of our culture, um, begun to set sail on the waves of societal norms. I want to read to you a few snippets from the article. Praying to the great queer one, students at United Methodist affiliated Duke Divinity School proclaimed God's acceptance and support for LGBTQ relationships in a pride worship service on March 22nd. Strange one, fabulous one, fluid and ever-becoming one, prayed second-year Master of Divinity student Caroline Camp in opening the service. She stated that God is mother, father, and parent, and drag queen, and transman, and gender fluid. Another MDiv student Encourage listeners to accept their sexuality because you are never called to abandon yourself. Abandoning the self is negating the truth of who you are, and that is always a lie. God is a queer God who loves every part of us, according to this student. A self-identified trans woman, a first-year Master of Divinity student, defended gender transition as biblical, I would like to suggest, she says, that uh, Genesis 32, 22 through 31 may stand as a trans text. This passage, as you know, details Jacob's wrestling with God, or wrestling with a stranger, rather. It turns out to be an angel of God, representing God himself. Until daybreak, the man harms Jacob's hip and commands Jacob to let him go for it's daybreak. Jacob responds, I will not let you go unless you Bless me. As a result, God blesses Jacob and gives him the new name Israel. In this passage, this young master of divinity student who self-identifies as a trans woman sees an example, she says, of a negotiated body, a trans body, which has been both momentarily injured and fundamentally blessed. She compares Jacob's struggle to the experience of taking testosterone to transition from a female to a male identity. She wonders how Jacob felt after the angel had gone and if he felt the same way I did 
on the clear October morning when I learned to give myself a hormone shot. Transition, according to this young woman, can be framed as a choice, but transition is better framed as a calling. Pulling out a biblical phrase there. It is a calling to wrestle with God and not let go until we receive a blessing in our own bodies. We live in confusing and strange times. More and more and more, we are forcing the fact, uh, forcing, I guess, uh, or rather being forced to face the fact that if you and I are going to be legitimate followers of Jesus Christ, men and women faithful to our Savior and Lord, we are going to have to get comfortable being a particular and peculiar kind of people in ways that no one in here is used to. We are used to being the influencers, the privileged ones, the ones at the center of a society that we so confusedly believed was Christian, as if any society could be. More and more we are realizing that is not the case at all. And even the ship of that disillusionment has long since sailed. And there's a great sifting happening among the people of God to see who really truly are regenerate, born-again, redeemed children of God. And whether or not we're willing to be the peculiar people that God calls us to be. This issue is uh, highlighted uh, in no way greater than when it comes to the issues of gender and sexuality right now. To hold to a biblical view of marriage, human sexuality, and God-given gender is to open yourself up to be accused of what is tantamount and has been for 30 years of being a racist. You're not a racist anymore. You're just a sexual bigot and a homophobe and so on and so forth. The difficulty, the struggle when I read things like this is on many levels for me. One, Duke Divinity School is supposed to be preparing men and women for ministry as it has done for many, 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 many decades and prepared many of them extremely well. These are young students taking a Master of Divinity. I know that degree well. I hold that degree. It's a 96-hour master's degree. It's insane. No one should ever get it unless you're going to be a senior pastor, and then I'm not sure you should get it anyway. And yet there is a, a perversion, a confusion about the Word of God and the basic Orthodox Christian doctrines that seems to come so easily when one says that God is mother, father, and parent. I can go there biblically. Father, we have no question about. Mother, we see motherly characteristics presented and attributed to God throughout the wisdom literature and some before that in the Old Testament. Jesus himself stands, looks over Jerusalem and says how he longs to gather them as a mother Hen does her, her chicks. Parent, we find that language. If we are children of God, we have God as our parent. And then so easily, they transition right into drag queen and transmen and gender fluid. And I'm off the train. But this is how deception, this is how human philosophy and tradition that's hollow and deceptive, comes to us. 
It comes to us sprinkled with elements of truth. Slowly, thereby leading us astray if we are not biblically and theologically formed people. And can I just say without apology, the vast majority of us simply are not. We know enough Bible and theology to condemn people and argue. We don't know enough to have been formed in a way that allows us to deeply love and to engage in people on an intellectual level without being combative or argumentative. Engage on them and with them on that level out of love, out of love. The, the, the struggle, I think, deeper for me is we have an entire generation or almost two now who have so been told as to having accepted it now as a generation that their sexuality and gender is not part of who they are as a human being created in the image of God, but it is who they are. It is their identity. It's a subtle shift that's been coming a long time. A long, long time since the enlightenment in our culture and has really ripened and borne fruit over the last 10 or 15 years here. Where to tell me I can't be this or I can't be that is not just to differ with a decision or a feeling of mine, but it's to tell me I can't be me because it's now my identity. This is where we are today in our society. We see the eruption this week as a pending Supreme Court decision was leaked, unique in the history of our society. And people are grabbing their weapons and taking their battle sides. Where do we go? Can I just... Can I just suggest to you this? We have nowhere to go but to God in his word. And let the truth of his word wash over us and get through us so fully that we're grounded to a degree that we'll never be shaken. We expect nothing from culture and society but what God tells us we can expect from culture and society. We're able to discern truth and to talk in love and with grace with those who feel differently and are struggling. Not this specific issue that we see here with these Duke Divinity students, but the challenge in the church in Colossae was like this. We've said over and over and over they had elements of truth and then all of these other things were coming in and distorting it and confusing it and Paul is trying to push them back into completeness in Christ. So what I want to talk about this morning, what God wants uh, to bring us in terms of a message is what does it mean to be complete in Christ? Let's look back at these verses. And I, would, I just want you to see things that are here that I think We've got to see, and as I prayed, we've got to hear, though we have deaf and ears, we've got to see, though we have 
blinded eyes, and we've got to understand and accept that we have darkened hearts. The first reality we see here is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, have fullness in Christ. Fullness in Christ. Let me ask you this morning, where do you feel incomplete? Where do you feel lacking or insignificant? Where do you feel scarred in a way that you've come to believe will never be healed? Where do you feel such a a deep sense of insecurity in who you are that it affects not only your image of yourself, but the way that you relate with others, that affects the very nature of your relationships. Look at verse 8. Paul wants to remind them that regardless of what they're hearing by those around them, or maybe even by some inside the church, they have fullness in Christ. Look at verse 8. See to it, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. This see to it here is, is um, a grammatical way of saying be on alert, beware, be watching, be thoughtful. And I don't think there's ever been a time in human history, including the first century when Paul is writing this to the believers in Colossae, when this could more apply. You and I have more information passing into our lives, most of us through our phones, We have more information that that represents itself as actual news than any people in human history. And I would tell you, beware. Be on alert. Be careful. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Through ideas that basically have no substance to them. No truth in them. That, as Paul says, depend on human, trend, uh, human tradition. Human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Let's dig down here just a little bit. When Paul talks about hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, he's reaching back deep into his Jewish heritage. Now, well, let me just say this. Uh, let's, let's read a couple of uh, passages, one from the Old Testament from Isaiah and one from the New Testament from the Gospel of Mark to give you an idea of what Paul is getting at here. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. The Lord says, these people come near me with their mouth. These people, these are his, his gathered worshipers who believe to be his chosen people, his covenant people, those who are right before him. And the Lord says, they come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. It's like that time your wife or maybe your girlfriend, more likely you were in the fiance range, right? Where she said, would you like to go see this movie with me? that has Jennifer Aniston and whatever boyfriend she'll have in it, and you said, yes, I would. Your lips were honoring her, but your heart was far from her. You had no desire at all to see that little rom-com. 
but your lips honored her. The Lord goes on and says, their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a group of people that would gather, would do life together, would worship, and, and, and in time that would come to be more formed and more driven by human rules that they had been taught than by the living word of God? I can't imagine that. Let's pick up Jesus' words in Mark chapter 7. We'll start with, well, I was going to start with verse 5. We'll start with verse 6. Let me set this up for you. So uh, Jesus is eating and his disciples are eating with him, and they haven't done the ceremonial washing of their hands. It was more than just washing our hands as we think of before we eat, but to ceremonially cleanse their hands and symbolically themselves before eating. And this irritates the religious among them, the Pharisees, who were always irritated. You'll notice if you've been around hyper-religious people, they are always irritated by something. Most unpleasant people on earth to be with. They come to him and they want to know what is going on. They say in verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And Jesus replies to them straight from Isaiah and said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. So no wonder they crucified him in time. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God and you are holding on to human traditions. The saddest thing in the world at this time was that the most committed people religiously in Jesus' day, his contemporary, his fellow Jews, the most committed to God were the most confused and deceived. They didn't even realize that a long time ago they had let go of the life-giving, purifying, empowering, transforming truth of God and traded it for religious tradition and rules. Verse 9, he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. He goes down, verse 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. We'll continue here. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. They never wanted to look stupid in the crowd, right? The disciples always wanted to get him private uh, where maybe they wouldn't look so ignorant and be like, we don't understand what you just said. And Jesus, maybe he'd had a long day, verse 18, are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? I think Jesus wasn't dull. I think he was frustrated. He was exasperated at having to bump up against this all the time. This religious traditionalism that actually enslaved people rather than bringing life to them. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. Very graphic picture there Jesus paints. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And we could do so much with that. Verse 20, he went on. What comes out of a person 
is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Paul is reminding the Colossians that they're in very real danger of trading the truth and the beauty of the gospel now unfolded before them, the mystery made known to them like we talked about last week, of trading that and the life that it gives for systems of rules and traditions that are hollow and deceptive. By people saying, man, Christ is good, but not just Christ. You've got to do this and not do this and do this and not do this. And the elemental spiritual forces of this world. When Paul says this, he's, he's talking about the cosmic idols that surrounded first century Colossae. He's also speaking of local deities and idols and national deities and idols. And I think this is a place for us to, to stop just a minute, be very honest, and put our hearts before God and our minds before God. And ask God, as we go through a season now, starting with this Supreme Court leak leading through um, the elections in November into the next two years of a presidential election, God, guard us again from being more American than Christian. Guard us from taking into our hearts and minds the idols and deities of our nation and our state and making them supreme. It's a very serious warning here to us this morning. Not only that, though, this, this idea of cosmic idols, worshiping the sun or the moon, part of the reason that the writer of Genesis says that God caused light to be in existence before the sun is made is that he was refuting, he was refuting in his day sun worshipers, saying the God who created everything can create light with no sun. He doesn't need the sun. And Christians, it baffles me. I was not prepared for this years ago, but it baffles me um, how many Christians still pay attention and give lip service to their horoscope. That's ridiculous. That stuff is a bunch of hogwash. A six-year-old could write it. Get some things right and some things wrong. And people who claim the name of Christ need to know that you're playing with pagan superstition in a way that the Old Testament writers warn against, that Paul warns against here. He calls it hollow and deceptive. I was the one place where I've, I've completely given into uh, the post-surgery pain and rehab of an ACL reconstruction was this last week. Uh, Jake and I went to a, a pastor's conference, and as we were getting ready to fly out, I was happy to sit in the wheelchair and be wheeled around. And once I realized, oh, I got to get a bag and my luggage and my crutches, so, you know, I don't know what we looked like, some kind of traveling circus, but Jake's pushing me with one hand in the wheelchair, um, and he's dragging luggage, and I've got some shoved underneath, and I've got a, a bag on me, and I've got crutches, but I tell you what, you get through security a lot faster, and I'm down with that. <laughs> so anytime I fly until I completely walk normal, I'm going to milk this for all it's worth. Um, you also get on the plane first, which is nice. So, um, so this lady was wheeling me down. Once we got to our gate and they were loading us up, uh, she was wheeling me down first and she was talking to me. And I don't know how we got on the subjects of birthdays. I certainly didn't bring it up. 
Uh, but she was telling me her, her, her sign, her zodiac sign, when she was born. I think she was born sometime in December because I said, oh, my wife's born in December. And she said, oh, is she a Sagittarius? I want to say, no, she's a meat eater. Um, <laughs> but I said, I don't, I don't know. Um, when's her birthday? Uh, December says, oh, yeah, she a, she's a, a Sagittarius. And I said, that's, that's grand. And had she not been about to dump me onto the plane, I mean, she wheeled me right up to the little vacant spot, you know, between, uh, between where the, I'm losing my words now, where the little hoo-yah comes out and connects with the plane. But anyway, um, and I stood up, but I, I so wanted to say, no, I don't pay any attention to that stuff. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying all of the fullness that you're looking for, that you're hoping to get from these other places and pull in your life to make you complete, you already have in Christ. And you're in a real danger of trading it for that which is only the promise of fullness, but is actually deceptive and hollow. Friends, this morning, many of you are in the same place. You, you may not be um, tempted to do it with your horoscope or tempted to do it maybe with national idols, but there are things and people and places in your life where you're trying to pull things in to make yourself complete because you don't understand that your fullness is found in Christ. Only he can make you whole. Only he holds the keys to what you need. Not only do we have fullness in Christ, we have fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with Christ. This is so significant because Christ is the one who has defeated sin and death and risen again. I mean, who else do you want to have fellowship with? All right? I want to have fellowship with the victor. Look at verse 9. For in Christ... For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. We just talked about that. He is the head over every power and authority. Verse 11, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul uses uh, two illustrations here, one of circumcision and one of baptism to put before us the union, the fellowship with Christ that is ours in Christ. And this issue of circumcision, is it, it can be confusing for us. Paul is addressing primarily Gentiles at this point. But as we know, if you read the Old Testament carefully, the, the, the leaders of God, the prophets of God, were constantly telling the people of God that outward circumcision means nothing unless it is an external sign of an internal devotion and dedication to God. That's the point of it. That's why the Old Testament talks about people uh, uh, speaking with uncircumcised lips and listening with uncircumcised ears. That's why Old Testament prophets talk about the people needing a circumcision of the heart. They understood that circumcision was only truly significant when it was an outward mark of one who was inwardly dedicated to God. So it is with baptism as he flows naturally into this. And I'll just say before we leave circumcision that 
throughout the Old Testament, if you look at it carefully, and certainly as it's unpacked in the New Testament, it was never simply a physical operation. It was meant to be a symbol of a spiritual transformation. And so it is with baptism. He moves on in verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism. Now, I want to pause there because I want you to note that Paul takes for granted that the Colossian believers, remember, he's, he's never been there. He takes for granted that the men and women who claim to be Christians in Colossae have been baptized. That that is the initial act of obedience to Christ when we profess faith to Christ. That, that is our public profession of our faith in him, that there's been repentance and redemption in our lives. He said, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says, when you and I, with hearts and ears and eyes opened by God, have an experience of, of regeneration, of new birth by the power and the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit and place our faith in Jesus Christ and ultimately in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. We talk about this over and over here, that God unites us with him in his death and in his resurrection so that your individual sins and your individual sin nature has been paid for. It has been atoned for. Jesus has taken care of it. The wrath of God has been poured out on it. It has been judged. And you now share in the resurrection of Jesus. Trapped between what was and what will be. The old world and the new world that has broken in. And one day, one day to God's glory and to your glorification, your physical body, which if you're over 35 is wasting away, will be resurrected by the power of God just as Christ was as the first fruits of the resurrection to come and be restored and glorified. The New Testament has no understanding at all of an unbaptized Christian, of an unbaptized follower of Jesus. You have fellowship with Christ. You have fellowship with Christ. You have fullness in Christ, fellowship with Christ, and freedom through Christ. Freedom through Christ. This last one is really significant. As Paul is working out his argument here to the Colossians, pleading with them not to trade this for that. Not to trade the truth and the beauty and the power of the gospel for deceptive and hollow philosophy that's based in human tradition and elemental spiritual forces. He says, everything that you're looking for, the fullness, the fellowship, the, the restoration and reconciliation to God that we know in our hearts as human beings, we've been alienated, the fellowship with Christ and freedom through Christ is yours in Christ. He says, when you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, remember, um, right here he's, he's speaking specifically to the Gentiles in Colossians, of which there were many. And in a minute he brings in himself and the rest of the Jews, but he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. Is that not a beautiful verse? 
You should memorize Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Now, let me ask, who's the active agent here in the event of salvation or redemption? Is it you or is it God? It's God. You were dead. Dead, dead, dead. We were at the conference this week, and Alistair Begg, some of you will know and some of you will not know, but um, Alistair Begg, whose church we were at, Parkside Church in Cleveland, um, during a Q&A, I don't remember what the question was or, or how he got off into funerals, but he said, he's a Scottish man, I'm not going to try a Scottish accent because I don't have it down yet. I want to get it down before I impersonate him, but... He said, funerals are supposed to be sad. They're supposed to be sad. Funerals are part of the grieving process. Funerals are part of the recognition that death is still an enemy. That God has conquered, yet in his patience, waits to apply the fullness of that victory too. It's supposed to be sad. He said, I, I don't understand all of these weird things and celebrations at funerals now. We want to pretend like death isn't real, so we have a celebration of life instead. He said, it's so bizarre. We're sitting in there with playful music going and people laughing and, and, and talking, and you're looking up on the screen, and there's uh, pictures of vacation trips, and they're skiing, and they're doing this, and there's a corpse in the room. There's a corpse in the room. It's a strange thing. And then he kind of backed off. He said, look, do what you, you want to, but it gives me the crawls to go to things like that. And I tell people all the time, I will gladly do a funeral. I will not do a celebration of life. Because when you're dead, you're dead. It's final. It's a state you can't get out of. It's a state you can't sit up from and say, I'd like a glass of sweet tea. You were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive with Christ. What does this mean? He expounds here and he says, he forgave us all our sins. Here Paul throwing himself and his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in there too. Now, they were already circumcised, but under the penalty of sin as well. God has made you alive with Christ. He has forgiven us all our sins. How much of your sins has God forgiven you in Christ? All. All that you have committed, all that you're going to commit, all that you husbands will commit today when you fail to celebrate, those of you whose wives are mothers, them adequately. Your sins past, your sins present, your sins future, your sinful nature. This is what Paul is talking about. Back up just a minute, verse 11, when he says, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. He's not saying that sin no longer remains, but that it no longer reigns in your life. How many of you would be deluded enough this morning to say, I'm a follower of Christ and sin no longer remains in me? That's heresy, friends. That's taught in some circles, though. That you can be so sanctified as to be glorified this side of the second coming, the resurrection. We need our sins forgiven. We live in a state of 
repentance. And then Paul fleshes this out, what this freedom looks like practically, both individually and cosmically. Individually, he says, he forgave us all our sins, verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay, Paul's about to say, look, we've got two things that actively oppose us. One is this writ of debt that we owe God that stands and condemns us. We are sinners indebted to God to whom we owe the payment for our sin, which is our death and our judgment. But Paul says, don't worry about that active opposition. In and through Christ, God has canceled the charge of your debt. He's taken it away and he's nailed it to the cross. And when you see Christ on the cross, you see your sin as well as that generically, generally, universally of the world on him. Being crucified. The wrath of God being poured out on your sin so that the charge of which you and I are absolutely guilty may be canceled by God. In Christ's church, you're, you're free. You're free. Paul even says you're free to sin, but it's not beneficial to you. It's going to harm you. But are you free to do it? Yes, you're free, free, free in Christ. Individually, cosmically, look at this. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. A couple of words here. Paul's readers would have certainly had in mind a Roman military triumphal procession coming into a city. When there wasn't Facebook and Instagram and news media outlets on 24-7 and heaven forbid TikTok and all of this stuff, how did you know what had happened when your nation went to war? You knew it when they came back victoriously, and your generals and your soldiers marched into your city center, carrying with them all of the loot and the treasure and the resources of the army and the nation or nation state or people group or tribe that they had vanquished, and the prisoners, those who had been vanquished. There's this picture of God having disarmed and disrobed all of the powers and authorities of this world. Spiritual principalities that stand opposed to us. Matters of a pagan and fallen sinful states and governments, including our own, that stand in opposition to the kingdom of God and to the way of God. God has in a mysterious way disarmed them, stripped them of their power, made a public spectacle of them just as vanquishing victorious armies made a public spectacle of the leaders and the generals over which they had just won a military victory. But there's, mere, there's more here to it than that. Part of what's behind Paul's theology here in his statement, I wish we could go into it 
Um, we see it in Luke's mind and in Acts 2 and other places. We see it uh, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and throughout Pauline theology. Is that what the Romans and the Jews sought to do together? As governmental state and religious hierarchy in the crucifixion of Jesus, as they led him as one vanquished to the cross, one in whom they had triumphed over, they beat him. They nailed him to the cross between two other men who'd received death sentences, and they made a public spectacle of him, in their minds triumphing over him. But all they did was what God had foreordained to happen. And in doing so, they actually unleashed the very power of God that absolutely calls us to abandon ourselves, to die to ourselves, to lay down our lives that we might receive it from him. They unleashed the very power they thought they'd made a human spectacle of and triumphed over. Paul is saying, don't miss out on all that's yours. Fullness in Christ. Fellowship with Christ. Freedom through Christ. Don't buy in to all of this other stuff. Don't seek your identity and your completeness and your fullness from anywhere else. Anywhere else. I want to go back just very briefly to these young Duke Divinity students and just tell you they are not to be hated or despised, looked down on or argued with, but loved and prayed for. The power of of books being printed now, the power of arguments being put out now, is so unequal to the power of the media. And I don't just mean news media. I mean of the movies and TV shows and music that is and has been really since the mid-late 90s been flooding into our lives and our minds and our households, restructuring what we believe to be normal, right, and true. John Piper said, No sin must keep a person out of heaven. None. What keeps a person out of heaven is the unrepentant pursuit of sin and the rejection of God's provision for its forgiveness in Jesus' death and resurrection. He goes on to say, Christians must count others as more significant than themselves, which does not mean approving of what they feel or do. But it does mean becoming a servant of their forgiveness, their rescue, their Christ-exalting hope. Christians should not bear ill will toward any. We live for the good of all. If you and I are going to be faithful followers of Jesus, we're going to have to begin again to take seriously our biblical and theological formation. So that it grows in our life to a degree that we don't need to argue and debate or condescend. That we're able to love and listen 
and ask questions and offer suggestions in a culture that has completely, completely lost its way and is embracing sin and darkness, calling what is evil good in ways that will lead to destruction. to individuals, to families, and to our society. My prayer this morning is that you will not leave this place. You will not leave this place without the personal faith that Paul mentioned here. This trusting belief in the God who raised Jesus from the grave. But that this morning, if you've never trusted him, you would, by the mercy of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, repent of your sin of your desire to be your own God and make your own truth. Place your faith in Jesus. Follow him in baptism and allow him to unite you, not only with your heavenly father, but with his people. For those of you who've long ago done that, I pray that this morning you would recommit yourself to deep faithful spiritual formation in a relational context. It can't be done only by yourself. Let's stand and pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.